Have you ever felt like your life is unraveling and nothing is going as it should? In Genesis 42, we discover that Jacob feels precisely like that, and yet God is graciously working on behalf of him and his family. For the Lord is our defense, yes, to defend us. For the Lord is our defense, yes, to defend For the Lord is our defense, yes, to defend us. For the Lord is our defense, yes, to defend At the end of Genesis 41, we learn that the prophesied famine had struck not just Egypt, but all lands. And so in this chapter, in the opening five verses, we see how news is beginning to spread that there is corn in Egypt. This news comes to even Jacob's ears, who challenges his sons to go to Egypt and to get corn. However, we see that Jacob is particularly protective of Rachel's son, Benjamin. And perhaps even in the language, there's indications of Jacob having suspicion of the involvement of his sons in the disappearance and demise of Joseph. And we see in this the providence of God because what it ends up doing is driving the ten sons who were guilty of mistreating Joseph out of the home towards Egypt and before their brother. In verses 6 through 28, the brothers make their way and arrive in Egypt and stand before Joseph, and immediately he recognizes them for who they are, and he speaks harshly to them. And so Joseph, remembering the dreams, begins to have certain questions arise in his mind. Are my brothers the same as they were 20 years ago? Where's Benjamin? Have they done something to him? And so he begins to put them through a series of tests. In those days, surrounding people groups were always considered a threat. So Hittites, Assyrians whoever it may have been, uh, would have been perceived as dangerous. And so why not the Canaanites? And so Joseph, he presents them with this challenge that they are spies. Now, some read this chapter and see Joseph as not being Christ-like as he normally is. He is being unnecessarily harsh and unloving. But verse 21 shows that there's a purpose in what he is doing. The brothers are brought to recognize their past sin and it comes to their conscience again and is alarming them in such a way that God is going to deepen repentance and do a work of grace in their lives. In fact, when you read verse 24, Joseph sees the first indication of their sense of wickedness against him in the past, and immediately he breaks down. He's not harsh at all. He senses and feels compassion and is moved to tears upon the recognition of repentance in the lives of his brothers. Now, Joseph's very astute, and he has a plan. He wants to bring Benjamin before him so he can ascertain his well-being and how he's doing. And so he brings the point that Simeon is going to stay with him while the rest return and bring back Benjamin. Now, why Simeon? Well, we can't say for sure, but we do know the eldest, Reuben, actually tried to prevent some of the mistreatment that occurred to Joseph and so moving from Reuben to Simeon, Simeon is held accountable for perhaps being the most responsible for the things that happened to Joseph at that time. Joseph then orders that the money be secretly packed with the corn and they return home. And on the way, one of the men, we're not told which of the brothers it is, discovers his money in his pack. And again, you see that conscience pricks them, they feel their sense of sin, and there's this just keen awareness, maybe for the first time in years, 
of divine displeasure, and it's driving them to their knees. And so from verse 29 through 38, as they make their way home, they have to explain the absence of Simeon. And of course, in doing so, explaining how they met this governor of Egypt and his desire for them to bring Benjamin down to prove their honesty. After this, they all open up their bags and they discover they all have their money along with their corn. And again, the conscience is gripped. Now Reuben, as the eldest, trying to conjure up some kind of solution to recover Simeon, offers his two sons. Now this is a foolish idea and it is completely has no bearing upon Jacob whatsoever. He is unmoved. He will not have Benjamin go and be put in danger because to lose Benjamin would bring him to an early grave. So things stay in a stalemate. So we come to application. One, God's people may lawfully trade with the ungodly for their survival and profit. At times within Christian circles, there can be certain views that arise that shun the world and have believers hide away from the context in which God and his providence has placed us. And so there are ideas of boycotts and things of this nature. And, you know, there may be a place for some of that. But here you see the covenant community freely willing to trade with Egyptians, having no sense of conscience about it or problem with it. And so we must remember, if I can put it this way, we shouldn't adopt unbiblical convictions that lead to the impoverishment of our families. This is unwise. Two, the only land without affliction is the place of eternal day. We have seen over and over again famine come to the land of Canaan. Abraham experienced it. Isaac experienced it. Now Jacob is experiencing it. And it's a reminder to us that God permits difficult times wherever God's people are in this world. And so when our Lord Jesus prepared his disciples for ministry, he told them to expect difficulty, affliction. He said, these things have I spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. Now, you see where the peace is. It's not in the world, it's in him. And so in the world, they'll have affliction and tribulation, but in him, despite those afflictions, there is peace. So it is for you and me. The peace is not in this world. The peace is in Christ. Three, difficult days require men of action. Jacob looks upon his sons amidst the famine and asks them, why do you look one upon another? Instead of motionless despondency, difficulties should drive us to action. In this case, the sons of Jacob are driven to the very feet of Joseph. And in like fashion, our difficulties should drive us to the feet of Christ. We're not to sit around just looking upon one another. We're to seek the Lord and do what he has called us to do. But rarely is there a better first response than fleeing into the presence of Christ. For God works on the conscience of man by experiences of justice and mercy. Here we find in the passage Joseph functioning as an instrument in the hand of God to bring repentance into the lives of his brothers. But he does it through harsh words and actions as well as deeds that are loving. We see in scripture how conscience gets moved upon by God's providence. You see it in Jonah 1 with the mariners and their observation of the storm and trying to read that. God in some way is against them. You see it also with the islanders that Paul meets in Acts 28 when they're trying to determine this biting of the viper and then the fact that he doesn't get sick from it and die. 
They're reading all of that. God is using their conscience as they observe the circumstances of his providence. Now, man's reading of providence is seldom as precise as it needs to be. But let that not numb us to the reality that God works in providence and he works in such a way to afflict the conscience of man and bring men to repentance. Thus, the only way for man to truly avoid a sense of divine terror is to, like Paul, have a conscience void of offence before God and man. That is how you and I need to live. 5. Ignored admonitions are reminders of our own shortcomings. It's not difficult to put yourself in Reuben's shoes in this passage when he, he stands before his brothers and he reminds them of what happened all those years prior. Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and ye would not hear. Effectively, he's saying, I told you so, and we've all been there, frustrated that someone wouldn't listen to what we had to say. But here's the point. Every sin is done against divine admonition. In other words, you and I have never sinned without actually going against what God has said. In other words, putting God in the position of Reuben and the ultimate frustration of why don't you listen? And so it humbles us all to realize every time I have sinned, I have done it against the admonition of the Lord. May God give us a greater awareness of him and an ability to hearken to all his words. And finally, everything is against those who are without Christ. When Jacob exclaims, all these things are against me, little does he know that as a child of God, God is always orchestrating events for the good of his people, but it is only for his people. So my question to you is, are you saved? Do you know Christ? This passage calls us all to fall before Jesus Christ, the governor of the universe, and the brother to penitent sinners. Like Joseph's brothers, we are to come to Christ, the only one who has corn for our souls and can meet and provide what we need to reconcile us to God. Have you come to him, boys and girls? Have you sought the Lord? May the Lord help you to come into the arms of Jesus and be saved.